because not only are they killing the spirit in our children, but they're also killing the spirits and the souls of the parents, you know. And if they had a chance, you know, they barely have a fighting chance unless they're super, super strong and have a huge support system behind them. Yeah. <clears throat> I think you're right. Um when kids were taken away to residential school um, under protest of the parents, um, they're taking away the mother's uh, authority and, and love and care and all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not replaced with anything except um <clears throat> rules you can't speak your mother tongue um and and all kinds of rules you know but if people were to take it upon themselves parents to begin the revitalization of language right away and make that a daily part of their lives that so when the ministry comes a knocking you know, they can say, no, well, uh, no, my child cannot learn their mother tongue anywhere else. The child needs to stay with me so that we can continue to teach him or her the language and the culture of our people. And I think that the language and the culture is key also to keeping the children. Well, one of the things I was thinking yeah. about, as long as they've got the whip hand, you know, they have yeah. the upper hand, they've got the cops, they've got RCMP, they've got the military, all those other things. But maybe what we can do is start forcing the issue by saying, okay, if you're going to take my child into foster care, you're going to have to provide a tutor for that child to learn my language. I'm not going to let you take my child without you providing for in the best interest of the child. It's a child has to know where that child comes from. The child has to know who its family is. It has to know its language, its songs and its community. But what they do is, they've done this to children for so long, like during World War War I,
Hi, welcome to the Arts Report for November 13th, 2013. Tonight on the show we have Michael Markowski to tell us about making art at supersonic speeds in a fighter jet. I'll fill you in on Blaine Ferrier's new film, Teen Lust, and I will be giving away tickets to Hoxley Workman's play, The God That Comes. So I'm going to keep playing Hoxley Workman until someone claims those tickets, so stay tuned for the next hour. Hi, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. I'm back and I'm here with Michael Markowski. I'm going to turn him on. Here we go. Thank you. Check, check. check. Yes. <laughs> All right. So Michael is joining me for our Remembrance Day special um, because we didn't get a chance to do that last week and everyone was off on Monday um, and it's always a solemn day. And I've got lots to say. As uh, most people know, I'm quite into uh, veterans, working with veterans. And Michael, you've got like a really interesting project that you've been working on. Yeah. And But first, <laughs> what's your sign? Uh, Virgo. Okay, good. An excellent <laughs> what's, sign. What's your sign? I'm a Leo. Okay. I don't yeah. know if that's a good thing or bad thing. Oh, it's a good thing. Okay. <laughs> 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 uh, just kidding. But um, so let's start with who you are. You were you are from Calgary. Yeah, born and raised in Calgary. Went to the art school there, and uh, then went to a couple other places: New York and uh, England. And okay, I'm just going to stop you right there. Okay. A couple other places in New York and England. So could you just um, sure. yeah maybe move into the mic a bit? Yeah. yeah. And so sorry. You went to New York. What did you do there? Uh, well, I went to Cooper Union, which is an art school out in right in the middle of Manhattan in the East Village. And uh, they recommended, I had some really great teachers there, and they recommended I go to graduate school. And so I went, uh, originally went down to Los Angeles to Art Center, and then I decided I was going to try uh, Royal College in England, and then decided to come back to L.A., and then I ended up finishing my degree there got my master's in fine art and then stayed there for another nine years afterwards and just a few years ago moved up here to Vancouver and love it here oh it's awesome here isn't it well oh, that yeah. sounds like such an exciting life like being an artist <laughs> and going to art school all over the world yeah I've, I've had the the fortune to go to a few different places and meet lots of different people and I think that uh, certainly I don't know if I think I've, I guess I've always had a passion for traveling and, I, and I've turned my passion for traveling into basically the central theme of my artwork yeah which is making art while traveling through the landscape so do you do drawings is that typically what you like to do primarily well I'll start by doing drawings and then often turn those drawings into paintings and those drawings are made while I'm in a car or strapped to the roof of a car or in the back of a truck with an easel or uh, on a boat, and I did a uh, train trip on the Via all the way from Vancouver to Halifax, drawing the landscape. And so it's I've always been interested in in because so many of us just that's how we experience the world these days is moving through it constantly and yeah. being bombarded with all this information and constantly distracted on our phones. And so I thought, you know, if Picasso was alive today, you know, he wouldn't just be sitting in a studio making paintings or standing in a field painting a landscape, he'd be out there doing all the things that we do in our regular uh, day and describing that feeling of being constantly overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. I love that. It's like part performance art, sort of. Sure, yeah. I mean, yeah. I kind of think of myself a little bit as a public artist. Yeah. Like, like I, in, you know, there's public art, like big concrete sculptures and stuff, but I feel like I don't really have a studio. I don't, I work out of my home, but usually outside of my home, out on the street, and, and uh, or like this new project in a fighter plane. I love that. It's just, yeah, and it must really stimulate conversation too. People around must be interested in what you're doing. Yeah, I love interacting with people. Yeah. I think that it's, it's odd. I'm often one of the first artists that a lot of people meet because I like working, you know, outside of the art world context. And so, you know, doing things in the middle of shopping malls or in the street and street corners and you know so people coming up and uh asking you know what i'm doing and, and also like I me mean, people will see people doing sketches of, of folks you know uh, you know and 
you know, at night on Granville Street, that kind of stuff. Um, but often what I'm doing is these sort of abstract paintings, and they certainly never, you know, have a chance to interact with people. And it's, and it's good because they get to kind of talk to somebody about artwork that usually uh, that might cause them some discomfort, mm-hmm. right? And and it's you can I have the opportunity to sort of maybe overturning some of their preconceived notions about what that art is about and why people make it and. Uh, so that's always really super interesting conversations. Yeah. And do you sell your paintings? I do, yeah. I, I show in, in galleries and museums um, across North America. And uh, I just had a show at the Moore Museum in Ottawa of um, some of the artwork I made at the North Pole last year. Did you go to the opening? <laughs> I didn't. I didn't go. I didn't have a chance to get to the opening. Um, I since I was, I've been doing a whole bunch of things related to uh, Remembrance Day out here, so I was actually the opening was was on Remembrance Day. So I love that you're so busy that you can't even go to like this prestigious opening <laughs> at the War Museum. <laughs> That's cool. So um, I don't even know what to ask about first. <laughs> so you went to the North Pole. Tell us. Okay, so the North Pole is part of this program you've been recently involved in. It's called the Canadian Forces Artist Program, and most popularly known as the War Artist Program. And it's been around since World War One, and it's kind of like the who's who of Canadian painters have been a part of it. Like the members of the Group of Seven, Alexander Colville and David Milne, and um, Charles Comfort. I mean, the sort. It's really an honor to be a part of the program in that sense because you're part of this kind of the exclusive club, I guess. Um, and uh, the other, I mean, obviously the other great thing is the opportunity to be able to have these really unique experiences and to meet people outside of my regular daily life. I don't, I've never really spent much time around uh, fighter planes and fighter pilots and soldiers and all this, you know, the, the beyond, I've never been really on a military base Except when I was a really young kid, you know, and they had back in Calgary, which they've since closed that base down. So, so how long have you been involved then? Well, I originally became involved back in 2009, um, and my original project that I pitched to them was to make drawings while flying in a fighter plane, and they accepted. <laughs> I, I did call them immediately afterwards and said, "Like you did read my proposal, right?" And oh yeah, no, no, we'll, we'll make it happen. And, uh, but I think that was Ottawa, the, the Department of Defense and gave the okay to that. But I think the, the people out in Cold Lake who, CFB Cold Lake, just northeast Edmonton, where I did eventually fly out of, I think they were much more skeptical about uh, me doing a flying in a fighter plane. And I think they sort of just tried to delay it as long as possible. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, and then, so I think that's why they sent me up to the North Pole, because there's, um, the, most people have no idea that there's Canadian Air Force Base near there. I mean, it's a tiny little thing about the size of a couple of ATCO trailers, and um, it's basically that and an airstrip and a whole bunch of uh, um, radio equipment, because uh, assuming basically they're intercepting signals from Russia and stuff. I mean, it's actually closer to Moscow than it is to Ottawa. And it's in the middle of nowhere, the most isolated place in the world. And you got to fly uh, about nine hours directly over the mountains. You know, nothing between you and <laughs> between point A to point B. So if you're, I had to do all these medical exams before I went up there in case you know you have a heart attack. You know, there's they, nothing there. They got to fly a plane all the way up there to pick you up, and then fly you all the way back. So wow. So. They were trying to delay putting you on the fighter plane. They said, sort of, we'll send you to the North Pole instead for a while. <laughs> I think so. I think yeah. that's what they, they thought that would be satisfied. And I would right. Or you'd, it would break away. you psychologically. <laughs> yeah. and, and so how long were you there? I was up up north for two weeks. Oh, and I was wow. just doing landscape paintings outside. So this, I had this giant... Uh, blue outfit that they gave me they called a uh, b25 kit a below minus 25 uniform that i had to wear um at all time well when i was outside anyway and these giant mittens and and long johns and everything and of course i learned instantly that painting with huge mittens was just impossible (laughs) and did your paint freeze 
I, it did not, actually. I was using oil paint, and I, I did a few tests before I left to make sure that the oil paint would work, and it turned out to be the perfect um, environment for making oil paints because the the paint just... It's also a super dry climate, so the paint dried relatively quickly, and um, and it, it, it it's, it's kind of hard to describe all the technical aspects of, of how the paint behaves, but it... it uh, for me, anyway, that just right out of the tube, I could paint, and you know, you didn't have to use any other extra mediums, even though I brought it all up there with me. Wow! And what was it like? Like at night, what did it feel like? The North Pole. How many people <laughs> get to go there? Well, oddly enough, it was actually twenty-four hour daylight when I was up there. So there's only a brief period of about a, a couple of weeks where there is um, the sun is setting and and rising, and then. The other half of the year, it's permanent midnight. So, which I actually originally wanted to go up there when in total darkness, um, but they uh, convinced me to come in the, in the well, not the summer, but in the middle of April when it was much brighter because uh, they said there was nothing to see out there. Although I wanted to experience being up there and just, I'm sure you'd be able to see every star in the universe mm-hmm. you know, in that environment. But, uh, yeah, so I ended up being there in, in the middle of, uh, I mean, for a painter, it's perfect when the sun is basically just going around in almost the exact same spot all day long. You can just paint the exact same scene all day long without the <laughs> shadows really changing. Right. Um, but, yeah, it was a super unique experience of being able to meet the, the men and women up there, and it really kind of overturned a lot of my preconceived notions mm-hmm. of, of, you know, what the military is and what they do and who is in the military yeah there yeah and what were your preconceived notions well i mean i think they're all very cartoony uh hollywood ideas of these kind of very jockey guys i mean mm-hmm. i didn't even realize probably about 40 percent of the canadian forces is female mm-hmm. right i never occurred to me i mean i thought it might be one or two or something but yeah, was, at least up there was probably half and a half even and um, and everyone was super nice and approachable, and uh, I think, oddly enough, I didn't even really s- see the f- effect that I might have on people up there. I was expecting it to be just an experience for my own self, but mm-hmm. I realized that for them, there a lot of people got something out of out of me being up there because uh, it was something completely different. You know, I think for a majority of men and women in the armed forces their lives are filled with a lot of repetition and boredom you know it's doing the same thing over and over and um, having somebody you know as as an artist who kind of can share uh, some of my own experiences with them talk to them you know all you do is, is hang out with people up there um, that uh, it, and also because of the fact I was describing their experience trying to paint you know the environment that they were surrounded by in the buildings that it gave them a sense of importance that somebody was documenting their experience. And, yeah. you know, for, for a lot of them, especially most people don't know that base even exists to have somebody come up there and document it gives them a, a sense of importance. I yeah. Guess. It's like ethnography kind of what you're doing. Yeah. Like documenting this culture and this landscape. And, sure. Yeah. Well, I also thought it was, especially that area up there, what's interesting is how quickly the environment is changing from, I mean, there's no question. I'm like, no, don't say yeah. what I think you're about to oh, say. I mean, there was also a small group of Environment Canada people up there, and I spent a lot of time talking to them. And you know, they're documenting how uh, you know the polar ice caps are receding, and in an environment where you know, even just 15 years ago, the, the idea of getting a boat, you know, to the at the North Pole was very difficult. Like, you'd have to have an icebreaker get up there now people are being able to canoe and stuff around there i mean it's just insane the 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 change the rapid change and um for instance there's all of these canadian engineers that were pouring in there because they're measuring the depths of where the the they call the ice shelf i think underwater begins because again it's all, all i don't know exactly all the issues but basically it ends up um canada and russia and sweden all these countries are are now arguing over where the limits of each of their waters end. And that, of course, because there's so much oil waiting to be tapped in there, it's... Oh, man. So, and, the, and there was grizzly bears, or not grizzly bears, polar bears up there for the first time. And I actually 
got into a lot of trouble for running around on the Arctic ice and without being with one of the soldiers with a gun because the day before they had seen polar bears wandering around and of course if I had stumbled onto one all by myself it would have been quick pickings. Right. <laughs> so normally they aren't up that north. They don't come anywhere. And there's no there. I guess food, so exactly. you would be excellent food for them. Oh yeah. And of course they'd be starving because there's no food. So right. Right. They're huge. Big animals. Oh, so. wow. Well, that's, you've heard it from the horse's mouth. Uh, the yeah. ice caps are melting. Yeah, for sure. Do something. What can we do? Like, you know, it's just, would yeah. take such a systemic change to make things <laughs> yeah. better and refreeze mm-hmm. the Arctic. So you've done this. Okay. So, but then you finished that and then you got your fighter plane. I want to hear all about it. Well, so when I got back from the North Pole, the first thing I did was I, I called up Ottawa and I said, you know, that was a fantastic experience. I can't wait to fly in the fighter plane, <laughs> which I think they were like, oh, damn, I thought you would have forgotten about that by now. But, uh, and I, I think they were still very skeptical out in Alberta. And so I ended up putting together this very elaborate package that included all these storyboards. And then I went down point by point kind of explaining why the value of sending me a fire plane would actually be because I knew they were skeptical um, and tried to answer all of their concerns you know I think they probably thought well this is a waste of time and resources and money and of course you know once you know it gets out there there's gonna be taxpayer rights groups <laughs> who are like what a waste <laughs> of money and so you know, I, I tried to reassure them that, that actually there was a lot of value to the whole experience. So, what was the case that you made? Well, there's a whole whole bunch of things that I, I wrote. Um, but first and foremost is that this is an it's an incredible experience, obviously, but it's something that only a few people get to share in, and very rarely do they let civilians of any kind fly in these planes. Um, but it. But we are all paying for these planes. We've all paid for it. Whether we like the military or not in Canada, it exists and it comes out of your paycheck every month, right? And these planes cost billions of dollars. And so wouldn't it, I think it's almost like a, a right of all Canadians to know and have that experience, but we can't send them all up there, mm-hmm. right? So wouldn't it be great to send an artist like myself to go up there, document that experience so that we can share it with the rest of Canadians? Um, and then beyond the fact that you know you could send anybody to up there with a video camera to shoot that and then you know discovery channels had some sort of program on i can't remember what it was called um documenting that those actual pilots in that base but they've never sent a visual artist whose actual job it is is like and who has a long career of making artwork while traveling you know through the landscape not just not quite that fast but i've been in a way, training myself for that exact mission, I guess. <laughs> so, so they said yes. Yeah, eventually they said yes, and um, that that was back in December. I got a phone call saying, "Yep, yeah, you know, in in May or June, it ended up being at the very end of July that I'd be going on this plane." So immediately, I decided to get into like super shape. I started like jogging and running. Because I had to do a whole physical, and, and they, I was, and I've watched a few of these things, and you have to be in relatively good shape because you you don't want to have a heart attack while you're doing one of these flips and turns and stuff. So if I didn't pass the physical, I wouldn't be able to go on the plane. And I didn't want to. Now that I actually got this opportunity, get all the way to the base, they do the physical, and then get failed, and you know that would be such a shame. <laughs> so <laughs> I kind of thought it was funny, probably being one of the first artists to actually go into training to get into uh, to do an art project so where did you leave from so you passed the physical yeah passed the physical and uh, then i had to do all of this ejection seat training right. which is very stressful because that actually made it really feel real yeah all of a sudden i'm on the base and i'm wearing this these the g suit they call it like this pressurized suit that inflates uh, when you go through uh, these big turns so that it prevents all the blood from draining to your head or to your feet, depending on which side up you are. And uh, put on the helmet, and then you sit in this, like, mock cockpit, and there's all of this stuff that you've been watching for six hours before about how to get out of the cockpit, and then they sit there with a the timer, and you got to get out of there in, I think it's like four or five seconds. Otherwise, they can't put you on the plane because the plane, if this event actually happened where you would need to eject, 
and you can't get out, mm-hmm. then they, you'd be screwed. So, safety, just yeah, safety. Yeah, exactly. So, and that's, and, and of course, after six hours of somebody talking at you and showing you all these slides, and they, they're not used to talking to somebody who's a total civilian and doesn't know all of these abbreviations and military lingo, so... A lot of it was just right over my head. Yeah. I yeah. <laughs> a couple of things like they, you know, they're like, so what do, what should you, what would be the first thing to do if you were parachuting, you get out of the plane and you're parachuting down and you look up and your parachute's on fire. And I'm like, oh my God. Uh, uh, no. <laughs> I uh, unhook my parachute, right? And, and this guy's like, no, that's exactly what you don't do. <laughs> what do, oh. what of the. Yeah, I can't. Even I guess remember. if you unhook your your parachute, then you just free fall to your death. It's something, yeah. I think so. You just try to steer as best as possible, and uh, yeah, I can't remember, but I just remember seeing this guy, the another fellow, just you know, face palm in the in the back of the room, like, <laughs> exhaling loudly, like, oh god, this guy's gonna die. <laughs> you know, just, so, um, but I managed to pass it all eventually, and uh, they put me in in the plane, and and uh, it was an hour and a half up in the air and made a hundred drawings really quick drawings um you know about a minute each and in a way they're a lot like uh, they're, they're scribbles basically and um like shorthand so that i could go back to my studio and make larger work from that and it was really exciting because afterwards i i knew i had hired a, a little crew of people to help document this experience i knew that i'd never be able to do it again so i might as well do it properly and so one of the things I wanted to do was show these drawings to the pilots that I flew with and get their reaction. And if anything, that was the thing that I was thinking about the whole time. And it uh, was because if I did a whole bunch of really bad drawings, and they would just look at it and be like, that was a waste of time. Mm-hmm. So, um, and actually, they, I got the exact opposite reaction. They were really excited, and they were looking at them, and they could recognize various maneuvers that we had done, and uh, and that was, I think, that was a success. Like even if nothing else happens from here on out, like the fact that they were able to recognize what I did as having some value or, or importance uh, was very important to me. That was, you know, because otherwise, you know. W- if it's not communicating their experience and they don't recognize it, then then I'm not actually communicating anything truthfully to the rest mm-hmm. of Canadians. So. Yeah. So what's supersonic speed? <laughs> the flight travels at supersonic speed. What does that even mean? Uh, it's faster than the speed of sound. So I think it's Mach 1.1 or, or maybe it's Mach 1. I'm not exactly sure the specifics of uh, But breaking the sound barrier. So you, if you're in the right atmospheric conditions and you you would hear that big sonic boom and you also will see kind of a halo effect around the plane it's quite spectacular and so okay where did you take off from so i the the base that i went to was cfb cold lake and that's just about three hours northeast of edmonton actually okay basically between fort mcmurray and edmonton and there's a giant weapons range there where the planes can fly around in Although now there's, because it's right by Fort Mac, there's all this oil development and Mm -hmm. whatever, the oil sands are kind of infringing on some of that land and even actually coming onto the weapons range a little bit, So, which is very odd. And you're flying through the middle of nowhere, basically just, you know, it's it's just lakes and trees. And then all of a sudden you pass over this giant oil refinery and they've, you know, they dug out all this ground. And so, you know, I've, I've seen also firsthand... The effects, you know, at the North Pole, but also in northern Alberta, what they're doing to the land mm-hmm. there, too. That's, that would be cool to document in your lifetime, yeah, this, these changes. for sure. Um, okay, so back to the supersonic speed. <laughs> so you take off, and is it is it like a regular plane at first? It feels like a regular takeoff at first? Um, I guess a little bit at first, like the actual takeoff, but you're very aware that you're not in a regular plane from the minute you sort of get in there. It's a very tight environment like there's no extra room for moving around and you're strapped in like from your your chest and your waist and even your ankles are, are pulled are what do you have to pee in <laughs> flight like that yeah you just hold it you, got, yeah. you go before you and then if i guess potentially if you had to go you would just go 
Right, in your, in your inflatable suit. <laughs> yeah. those, no, those soldiers are amazing. They yeah. are rocks. Like, oh, I've man. seen them sit in a conference. Like, everyone else in the conference is, like, wilting or on their phones. <laughs> and I look over at them. They're just, like, stock perfect still, posture, perfect yeah. posture for hours, like, yeah. all day. Anyways, so it takes off. And then and then there's a point where it just crosses a threshold of speed. Like, it, does it build? Do you sense the building? And then it just explodes into a new dimension? <laughs> well, like, like you said, so the, you do have that sense. You just you sort of take off, and it's everything's kind of normal. And if anything, you're kind of like, well, this is fine. You know, this is just... But, of course, you're, the main thing that's also very different is you're in this domed space, right? Unlike the vast majority of us when we fly in, you know commercial airliner all you can see is just through this little porthole at the mm-hmm. side of the plane and here you can see everywhere you know um basically 180 degrees and straight up into the sides and um and you have this sense of being like in a fishbowl like you're submerged in in the sky and and everything just feels so uh it kind of unnatural because you feel like you could just reach out and touch the clouds that are kind of just, you're, that you're going right through and around and and yet and it also an odd feeling of not you don't even feel like you're traveling that fast too um, especially when you get up higher because it's hard to judge the the speed because you're you're not really passing close to things like we actually did get much closer to the to the ground we flew over top of the trees and that's when you really do you can feel a sense of speed because you can judge how far away a tree is and then it's right (laughs) yeah so so can you describe that boom thing to me again yeah so we we started kind of flying um to get that because we weren't flying at the speed of sound the entire time we were doing all these turns and at sometimes those turns you're you're getting close to to stalling because you're going so slow actually but the, the going the sonic boom we sort of went to descending kind of right below the clouds and just picking up speed and he's like counting up like we're doing 0. 0.8 0. 0.9 0. 0.1 and then there was just a little bit of a, a like a, you, well you could feel this vibration kind of happening <laughs> and then he's just 0. 0.1 0. 0.2 we broke step, speed of sound you know 0. 0.1 0. 0.5 0. um and it's if very clinical you know okay um, so <laughs> it wasn't dramatic like in a star wars movie or something it, it wasn't yeah it's it, uh in in that sense there's almost like a um uh anticlimactic kind of thing that, that's happening from the ground you would have, it would seem really amazing when you're actually in it it's it's hard mm-hmm. to, to to get that feeling mm-hmm. um I want to finish talking about that, but I just have a question. So has historically there been like a tie between the military and art, would you say? Well, I think, um, I mean, going back to the you know origins of, of war, I think there's always been, you know, the role of art has kind of changed. I mean, back for a long time, it was about really creating heroic portraits and propaganda mm-hmm. of war. Um, and uh, the, when the Canadian Forces Artist Program began, that was uh, in World War One, and it was originally artists who were enlisted in the military. So, uh, like some of the members of the Group of Seven were actually soldiers on the front, and I think they realized quite quickly, you know, maybe we shouldn't have A. Y. Jackson with a shotgun or whatever, you know, in the you know at the Battle of you know. Passchendaele or something. Maybe he should be a little bit further back in painting some of this <laughs> stuff, right? Because it would be yeah. bad PR, you know, if one of these guys yeah. died. So um, I think that's kind of how it began. And then on f- over the years, it's become a, a civilian program. So they embed civilian artists, I think, that to have some distance. Which is, I mean, I think what's really interesting about that whole thing is how, I think, um, uh, they, they give you have a tremendous amount of freedom. There's no censorship. I don't have to, to get anything approved. You know, I don't, don't have to do a positive propaganda piece for the military. I can do whatever I want with this mm-hmm. experience. You know, I could do something like a real negative takedown of the military industrial complex. If mm-hmm. I um, but, uh, but I, I wouldn't, or I won't because the experience I had was actually really incredible and it, and it really kind of changed a lot of my, as I said, my preconceived notions of what the military, the Canadian military anyway, is all about. Mm-hmm. 
I just want to play a couple of minutes of music and then come back and have more sure. to talk to yeah. you a couple of questions. And I want to talk about a few other military things. Um, I just want to remind you about the Hoxley Workman tickets I'm giving away. He's in a production, The God That Comes. And I'm going to speak to that a bit later. But just if you want tickets to that production, please tweet us at CITR underscore arts report or message us on Facebook at the Arts Report on CITR and get those tickets. I'm giving away those tickets. I'm not leaving the studio until those <laughs> tickets get given away mm -hmm. and I'm not going to stop playing Hoxley Workman. But um, I guess I asked that question just because I wanted to play this piece of music cool. um, by one of my favorite composers, Holst. Uh. And he did, a, I'm into astrology, so he did a whole <laughs> bunch of symphonies, um, one for each planet. And uh, uh, yeah. Neptune and Venus are very beautiful. Mars is not so beautiful, um, but here it is. Gustav Holtz, the planets, Mars, the god of war. I'll just be back in a few minutes with Michael Markowski on CITR 101.9 FM.
Okay, that's enough because we must continue on with our Remembrance Day show. I'm here with the artist Michael Markowski, and he was telling us about his work um, with the sorry the art uh, the Canadian Forces Artist Program, yes. flying in a fighter jet at the speed of sound above the speed of sound, doing drawings to be turned into paintings. Um, and so you said you hired a film crew. Did they come on the flight as well? They didn't. Yeah, because yeah, they would have had to do the training and all exactly. that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so, but they filmed you going on the, like, boarding and stuff? Yeah, yeah, and all the training and my medical exam. And awesome. And whole week and hanging out with the pilots. And we even went to one of the guy's houses and had pizza and beers and watched Super Bad and all this kind of um, so it was great. Yeah, it was great being able to spend time with all those people. And was, like I said, I knew that I would never be able to do that again. Um, and so that's why I, you know, spent a whole bunch of money getting really good cinematographers there and made a, there's a little, but that's actually right now I'm, I'm trying to raise some money now mm-hmm. to get a film made with all this footage we shot and then also to create a big art show that'll tour across the country. Awesome. So how's the fundraising going so far? Pretty good. I just started it uh, over a week ago now, and uh, an Indiegogo campaign. You can go to f18art.com, okay. f18art.com, and it's uh, is there's a really cool trailer there that shows me flying around upside down, and, all <laughs> and also some of the stuff kind of behind the scenes, looking at the planes and talking to some people there. And, um, and that's sort of just the teaser to get people excited about uh, all the incredible footage we got. Over forty hours worth of stuff for to shape into a film. Oh, nice! And so, when do you anticipate, like, provided things go on mm-hmm. schedule, and do you anticipate it'll come out? Well, we're hoping sometime around May or June to have it all finished. So, and I'm working with a director, his name Mike Peterson, who's a really well-known director out, out in Calgary. He just has a film touring the festival circuit right now called Lloyd the Conqueror that has a couple of guys from Trailer Park Boys and um, some of the people from the Sarah Silverman program. And so I'm really lucky to have him on board because he's got, you know, a very good director. And it, we were talking about this for a long time before the flight even took place and he helped kind of shape the vision for the film and sort of gave tips to the cinematographers what we wanted to capture. Wow, that's really exciting. Yeah, it's going to be pretty cool. I mean, I honestly feel I've sort of got like a masterpiece mm-hmm. on a couple of hard drives just waiting to be released, you know, like like uh, the Michelangelo you know, chiseling yeah. and releasing the sculpture yeah. of marble. So go to f18art.com and donate and raise money for this yeah. worthy cause. Well, I mean, for as little as five bucks, somebody can, you know, can contribute and they, and everybody gets something. So it's yeah. not like, it's not a donation, it's their actual investments and people get t-shirts and artwork in return for their yeah. investment. It seems like most people I know that have done those campaigns have been successful in raising the money that they wanted. So yeah. it seems like a thing to do, like a wise thing to do. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's a great way of, of of dealing directly with your audience because mm-hmm. these are people that obviously get what I'm doing and want to help out and want to realize something new and different and also get some kind of cool swag in return. Right? Mm-hmm. So, so are you doing, have you done the paintings? No. So, well, the, the paintings that I want to do, I want to make at least one giant 70 foot mural that will be kind of this circular immersive environment that people can step inside and it'll be, um, from all the drawings I made in the fire plane, the clouds and the landscape, and so that you will be able to then uh, have that experience of flying in the plane surrounded by the clouds. And, um, and ideally as well, depending on how much money I can raise, build a life-size replica of the, the uh, F-18 made of wood and canvas so you can be able to climb on top of it and sit inside of it and you know, have, be able to look around and you'll be surrounded by this giant mural. Wow, that sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah. I know you'll be successful in that endeavor. And so you were saying that um, you did um, stuff for Remembrance Day. What did you do specifically? Well, I was just out of, on town going to various different events and just meeting people and just being kind of visible. And uh, I have this, like, jacket that I got when I was up north. And uh, it's you know says, you know, alert and north pole and all this kind of stuff. And... Um, yeah, just sort of just wanted to kind of take that experience in and 
um, because I, especially now after having had these two experiences, uh, deployments, I guess, um, Remembrance Day is so much more meaningful mm-hmm. to me. It's all of a sudden really hits home. Like my my grandfather and and relatives, like uh, great uncles and people were fought in World War One and World War Two, and yet. You know, I never really got a chance to talk to them about those experiences. And I don't think they even wanted to talk about any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of a common theme for a lot of veterans is that the war is nasty and it's awful. And as quickly as it can be forgotten, the better. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, so that's the role of the war artist is to then come and document these things and share them with people, share the very things that people don't want to talk about with the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, one of the things that keeps coming up is people, there's, you know, some people are quite skeptical about an artist being involved with the military and then what kind of art that I'm going to produce. I think some people might be, you know, uh, reticent to invest in my project because they see it as some sort of military propaganda. Right. Um, which it isn't in any way at all. Um, I think of it mostly as both a celebration of flight and then also as a way just to honor our veterans and and um, to share their experience with as many yeah. things as possible. Yeah. I've been fortunate to work with veterans through um, my studies uh, in the counseling psychology department at UBC. So we run a program called the Veterans Transition Network. And a lot of them come back very damaged from mm-hmm. what they've been through. Um, and so we do group therapy with them. And so Remembrance Day have really gotten into, usually I attend the UBC Memorial event every year. And a couple of my friends that are veterans were on global TV and mm-hmm. um, other local networks talking about their experiences and raising awareness. So that's really great. And a few weeks ago, I got invited to a special ceremony with Romeo Dallaire came to honor the guys that had been through our group therapy program. And so he gave them special coins. Um, And these, man, what they've been through is insane when you hear. And you Mm -hmm. you see the damage. Like, they come home and they become, you know, just like self-harming, drinking, Mm -hmm. uh, violent, um, and just tortured and you know the old way or one of the ways is to push it away and not talk about yeah. it but it comes out in these other ways exactly. uh, causes a lot of damage to the families and um, you know they're so, sort of sold a raw bill of goods in a sense right oh, for sure. like you know I can see the appeal of the military culture but they get over there and they have to do things they never it's it's different yeah. and you're told you have to do it and then doing it yeah. you know um, things that they feel robs them of their humanity. And um, so uh, I guess it's like a military tradition that a general will give his soldiers a coin for an act of bravery. Really? So Romeo Dallaire came and gave them coins for their act of bravery of going through this group therapy. So it was a very emotional uh. ceremony, a small ceremony. And I'm like obsessed with Romeo Dallaire. I've read mm-hmm. his books, seen his films. And um, I just, I mean... I don't even know what to say about like his humanitarian kind of stance and his humility and just this leader, like a truly great man. That's what I, you know, I I knew that already. One of those great men that don't have to, that are so strong. They don't have to impose themselves. Mm -hmm. They just radiate something that you want. And, you know, I was like, I would follow him. If he told me March to a certain death, I'd be like, no problem. (laughs) I would do that. Um, and I was so nervous because I wanted to meet him. And then I became totally anxious during the cocktail party. And everyone's like, just go up to him. He's so nice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, no, no, I can't. Uh, and then I went up to him. And he was so gracious. Like, really? took your hand, looks in your eyes. You're the center of attention. And he's so gentle and has a word for everyone. Like, wow. he's just knows how to just connect with everyone and he's in the ceremony he seemed to know who was struggled more as they came up to receive the coin like the guy that was hurting more he'd have an extra pat on the back for him like he just has this fatherly intuitive caring personality and then when he spoke about his own experiences of 
PTSD mm. and what he's been through. Um, he said he'd be dead if it wasn't for counseling. You know, he has to take mm. psychiatric medications every day just to get through the day. Yet he urged people mm. on to sort of, and yet he doesn't abandon the military. All of his kids are in the military. Mm. Um, you know, he's a staunch, he has his own foundations um, that raise awareness about child soldiers there's 250,000 child soldiers mm. in Africa and he just he's like a pit bull and his strategy is attrition you just wear them down wear them mm. down wear them down like I'm like if he was the prime minister of our country it would be like a, a dream so yeah. that's sort of my rant I mean I could just continue on <laughs> ranting uh, but he had a he was like yeah like godly is is too much of an exaggeration but someone like a Gandhi or yeah. you know that knows how to connect with people and has such a pure message of mm -hmm. humanitarianism and equality and um and then his wounding his own his own wounding is so massive it's like this mythical wounding of what he experienced mm. and witnessed in rwanda so yeah i just like to meet him and shake his hand and look him in the eye and i'll see him speak it again again at another conference um on the opposite side of the scale I just, this is sort of more of an amusing anecdote. <laughs> I got a Facebook request okay. uh, from this guy, Robert Brown. Okay. Um, and he was like an army guy. I was wearing fatigues in the photo. And I thought, oh, well, you know, maybe he's just linked to me from like some of the veteran sites that I've liked and sure. stuff. Um, but then I went to his page and checked him out. And it, his cover photo is him. Um like in these gray fatigues speaking with like Korean generals. And so I Googled him, <laughs> Robert Mark Brown, Brigadier General Mark Brown is commanding general. Um, uh, he works for the Pentagon. He's like super decorated works. Uh, like his list of things. He's basically like the highest person in the art in the U S army. And he had four friends, like me and like three other kind of cute <laughs> blondish so girls. Random. Two of them who worked at like one worked at Mal Walmart, one worked at Subway and me and one other blonde girl. Huh. And I was like, yeah, there, like there's <laughs> no way that this like Pentagon like general yeah. is just friending random girls on Facebook. But maybe he is. So I was like kind of against my better judgment. I just kind of yeah. accepted his friendship. And, you know, so then... I don't know. He posted a photo or something. I liked it. So then he instant messages me. Oh, He's geez. like, how are you going? That was his message. Oh, yeah, that's exactly how the general talks. <laughs> yeah, like totally <laughs> illiterate. And then I was like, oh, so you're a, you know, you're a highly educated. Oh, he needed two master's degrees. So I'm like, oh, so you're a highly educated, highly decorated, you know, brigadier general. He's like, yes, I would like to get to know you. So I wrote him back. I was like, nah, I don't think you're uh, this person, yeah. Mark, Robert Mark Brown. But, like, you know, you can be my Facebook friend. I'm not going <laughs> to correspond with you. And then he wrote this abusive message back, like, get wise. Don't you talk to me like that. Like, and I just blocked him. Whoa. So that was my amusing story. I'm sure it was not. I, I do not slander the real Robert Mark yeah. Brown. But there's an impersonator <laughs> yeah. out there huh. creating havoc, picking up, what attempting to. Isn't that totally to odd? To like a super high-profile person to try to pretend you're them. Like, I know. Served in a variety of command and staff positions. Deputy Commanding General, Artis United States Army Research Development and Engineering Command. Chief of Staff and Senior Military Assistant um, to the Army Commander of Defense Contract. Like, yeah, just this list and all these. <laughs> He's on LinkedIn, the real guy. Hmm. But that was my amusing so the time has gone so fast, and I wanted to talk about um, Blaine's film. But first, what I'm going to do is talk about Macbeth. Sorry, I'm just going to do some preparation here. 30 seconds. Our hour's gone. It's been an absolute delight. Oh, I just flies. I just try to put new pornographers into... Um, YouTube, but I misspelled it, and now I've just gotten this slew of pornography come up, <laughs> <laughs> come up on the. Okay, here we go. So first, I'm going to talk because I moved to New Westminster. I love New Westminster. Where did you? Where do you live? I live in Mount Pleasant. Just uh, yeah. everyone cool lives there. But <laughs> I was talking to some people last night. They're like, "We live on Main Street." I'm like, "I love New West. It's the 
next wave, they're like, whatever. So at Douglas College, they're putting on um, Macbeth, and it started on the 8th, and there's a few days left. It runs until the 16th, um, so it's running tonight at 7.30, tomorrow and Friday at 7.30. Saturday the 16th is the last day. There's a 2 p.m. matinee and a 7.30 p.m. show. Um, so it should be good. Shakespeare is always good. Yeah, Macbeth like, is my favorite, actually. Oh, oh, Great yeah. story. Yeah. Can you give me a brief synopsis of the story? Like the the, the ten second oh, Macbeth. Uh, Macbeth uh, with the with the um, the king who's got the super manipulative wife who basically commands him to do all these kill all of these people, including his brother, I think. And then the both of them, or at least him, he starts having all of these you know uh, paranoid fantasies or being haunted by demons which may or may not be real and the witches curse him um so it's like a really dark mm-hmm. dark story but uh um, really kind of powerful uh, and if it's done well it's 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 his best i think mm-hmm. well i wanted to <laughs> do a monologue to promote the show of lady Macbeth. now i have no acting experience if if 10 is like a Helen Mirren Macbeth delivery and one is like a teenager on YouTube delivery, I'm probably about a, a 2 or a 1.5. So <laughs> I'm just like, uh, there's no warning. But um, Michael has kindly offered to play Macbeth to my lady Macbeth. Yes. So we will start. It's mo- meant to be funny, not good. Okay, so <laughs> I don't know. This is Act 1, Scene 7. And it sounds to me like they've decided to kill Duncan but now he's backing down and she's pissed off. Yeah. Okay, so here we go. Was the hope drunk wherein you dressed yourself? Hath it slept since and wakes it now to look so green and pale at what it did so freely? From this time such I account thy love. Art thou afeard to be the same in thine own act and valor as thou art in desire? Wouldst thou have that which thou esteemst the ornament of life and live a coward in thy own esteem? Letting I dare not wait upon I would. Macbeth. Prithy peace, I dare do all that may become a man. Who dares do more is none. What beast was it then that made you break this enterprise to me? When you durst do it, then you were a man, and to be more than what you were, you would be so much more the man. Nor time nor place did then adhere, and yet you would make both. They have made themselves, and that their fitness now does unmake you. I have given suck, and know how tender it is to love the babe that milks me. I would, while it was smiling in my face, have plucked my nipple from his boneless gums and dashed the brains out, had I so sworn as you have done to this. If we should fail? We fail, but screw your courage to the sticking place, and will not fail. When Duncan is asleep, whereto the rather shall his day's hard journey soundly invite him. His two chamberlains will I with wine and with sail so convince that memory, that warder of the brain shall be a fume, and the receipt of reason a limbeck only, when in swinish sleep their drenched natures lie as in a death. What cannot you and I perform upon the unguarded Duncan? What not put upon his spongy officers who shall bear the guilt of our great quell? Wow. No, you don't have to say that. That was an embarrassment <laughs> for me. But, you know, I did it way better alone in my room at night. You were here, so I was, like, more awkward than I would have <laughs> no, than I would have otherwise been. I didn't think I'd get a chance to come on and read Macbeth. I know. <laughs> so Macbeth is playing at the Douglas uh, Theater. No, the Laura C. Muir Performing Arts Theater at Douglas College. You can just Google that. Um, and it's almost time to be done, but I did something really cool last night. I went up to Capilano University where Blaine Thurrier from the New Pornographers was doing sort of a, a pre-screen of his new film called Teen Lust. And it was totally awesome. What I saw that too. Yeah, I saw a cut of it a few weeks ago. Oh, good. Yeah. What What did you think of it? That was pretty good. Yeah. yeah. I thought it was like a cult classic in the making. Exactly. Yeah. Like campy and fun. <laughs> it had this sort of spring break, like losing your virginity, but like ramped up. Yeah, like, in a very odd twist to the whole thing. Yes, we don't want to give too much away. Um, but Carrie Elwes was great. And he's a Hollywood actor who dazzled 
young tweens in The Princess Bride. Oh. <laughs> um, and he played this cult leader. Like and, Ozzy Osbourne. Yeah, to- that's exactly. I was like, who is he like? And it was Ozzy Osbourne. Yeah, yeah not as adult as Ozzy Osbourne. <laughs> um, and uh, I thought the lead actor, the guy who plays Neil, was really good. Yeah. Really there was something about, I said to Blaine, man, was he good? And he said, yeah, there's something special about mm-hmm. him. Like he, and then I was like, who is he like? Like, he's not really like anyone. Um, but I was like, it's kind of like if Tom Hanks was really good, mm. like he kind of has that, Tom Hanks is kind of that clean cutness about him, oh, yeah. but he's kind of bland. But this is like, if Tom Hanks has a clean cutness, but is like truly a great yeah. actor, maybe that's not doing Neil a service. <laughs> Um, and I loved the girl, the love interest, mm-hmm. the girl. That was a really good cast, really well done. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to go somewhere, I think. Oh, for sure. It was a really fun trip. So, I don't know, I'm kind of torn between playing Hawksley Workman um, so that someone will get the tickets. But you know what? As far as I know, no one's taken those tickets. So you get those two tickets. Woo! <laughs> uh, Michael, to the God that comes, it's playing at the Cult. It's a wine-soaked rock and roll cabaret celebrating the God of wine and ecstasy. Wow. Part play, part concert, all Bacchanalian. And you get to go. Unless wow. someone actually has emailed, in which case <laughs> I have to get it to them, but I'll let you know. That means I don't have to play Hoxley Workman anymore. That means I can leave uh, with the new pornographers, Blaine's band. So Teen Lust, I don't know when it'll be out. It's not done, hmm. um, but it's on its way to being done. And I'm going to play Moves. I talked about my uh, Scorpio Drummers segment. So last week we played um, Ian Brown from No Sinner. It was his birthday. And at the top of the show, I played Hot Hot Heat. Their drummer, Paul Holly. his birthday is around now. And I'm going to play the new pornographer's moves. Scorpio drummer John Worcester plays Carl Newman in this video. So it, it was his birthday on Halloween. So happy birthday to sexy Scorpio drummers. <laughs> this is new pornographer's moves. And make sure to come back. Um, next week on the Arts Report between 5 and 6 p.m. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye, guess. I hear music in my head, and I need to get it out. Sing along.